another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, finance, and tech. I am your co-host, Taylor Scullin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. So listeners uh, might be surprised to know that Taylor recently acquired his driver's license. So congratulations to Taylor. And I guess a follow-up to that question is, you know, first of all, welcome to the world of, of driving. And, Thank you. And, you know, as a new driver, I mean, how are we thinking about getting around these days? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, you know, it's embarrassing to admit that as a 32-year-old man, I only recently <laughs> uh, have been legally allowed to drive. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a whole new world. And it uh, immediately, of course, got me thinking about a topic that I have been interested in for a much longer time, which is electric vehicles uh, and specifically the batteries that go into them. Because, you know, we hear a lot of uh, stories and news items these days about big investments in the EV supply chain in batteries, um, which is great. And then we also hear these stories about shortages of things like lithium and cobalt, these things that go into making the batteries work. Um, And I think it's important that we do an episode where we dig into uh, what's actually going on here. Of course, because as a new driver, you want to drive in an environmentally conscious way, of course. Absolutely. That's the most important thing to me when I'm on the road is keeping my my carbon footprint as low as possible. But this is a really big, complex topic. The more that I think we read about it, uh, the the thornier it, it became. And so we thought it'd be good to have someone on who could unpack all this for us and explain where Canada fits in to the EV supply chain and the battery supply chain. And we really have a fantastic guest to do that with us today. Uh, Eric Reed is a principal at the Boston Consulting Group and a member of the group's industrial goods and climate and sustainability practices. And he recently co-authored a report on the battery supply chain in Canada and how that can all play out. So we're really excited to have him on. Eric Reed, thank you for joining us on Free Lunch today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you co-authored a report called Canada Has an EV Edge If It Acts Now. Can you walk us through the findings? Absolutely. So um, I think, you know, the, the, the thrust of our report is that um, there is a, a tremendous opportunity for Canada to play a really outsized role in the electric vehicle value chain. I'm happy to go into what that looks like. Um, but it's by virtue of a couple of things. One is our tremendous natural resource wealth. Um, uh, one is our capabilities and our ability to produce some of the core components that go into electric vehicles, uh, namely batteries. Um, and then one is recent uh, happenings um, internationally, uh, especially with respect to the U.S. Uh, IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, and how that incentivizes localized battery supply chains. You know, we found that um, the, the value in a battery, uh, you know, is is tremendously concentrated downstream. So Canada traditionally fo- focuses on um, things like extraction, um, but if you begin thinking about some of the downstream activities, processing, refining, cathode manufacturing, anode manufacturing, you know, those elements that go into a battery cell, the battery cell manufacturing itself, um, that makes up approximately you know ninety percent of the value of a battery. Um, 10% is in the extraction, 90% is in those downstream activities. Um, and so if you think about our tremendous natural resource wealth, our proximity to the U.S. and some of the rules that have kind of come through 
um, the recent legislation, we have a really amazing opportunity to capture more of that downstream value and really think about how we can build an integrated value chain here in Canada um, and uh, and really capitalize on that opportunity. So before we get into that, can you talk us through why it's important to be talking about this right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's a there's a, been an, basically an explosion in demand for batteries. Um, I think the the you know demand for batteries globally is uh, is growing. It is anticipated to grow, um, and it is basically what is really powering what we think of as the green transition, especially as it relates to electric vehicles. So um, every you know electric vehicle you know today really needs some sort of battery. These batteries are powered by you know um, uh, or or are built with. Uh, minerals, what we traditionally think of as uh, called critical minerals, and they're critical because of their criticality to the green transition. Um, and uh, and given this, you know, explosion in demand, um, driven from a number of different factors, um, you know, we see actual projected shortages in some of these critical minerals. And so, around the world, auto companies are looking at how they are going to secure uh, supply of those critical minerals. Uh, and the nations and, and, and provinces and states that sit on those critical minerals are thinking about how they can get a larger share of the pie um, as it relates to the production and use of those minerals. Um, so, so it's a really, really, you know, uh, timely uh, conversation to be having just because of the demand for electric vehicles as it relates to the green transition and the kind of upcoming scarcity in, in some of the core inputs. So... Just to drill down into the batteries specifically, because the batteries mm-hmm. that I use in my daily life uh, are about you know that big, and <laughs> yeah. I put them in my remote control. But these are a very different beast. So, can you just explain sort of what is in these batteries? Like, what are the minerals that go into them? Uh, what makes up that ten percent of the value chain, and then sure. the ninety percent? Uh, where does that fit in as well? How does that all come together? Totally. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's best to almost take it from that uh, supply chain um, view and, and, and walk through it. So, um, you know, a battery is comprised of different components. These components allow the battery to basically charge and discharge and displace energy. Um, and that's what's needed for anything um, from your, uh, your cell phone to a electric vehicle. Um, the difference is battery architecture, what we call architecture. And that's like the, the different, how the different components are comprised of different minerals. So whether lithium is used, whether iron phosphate is used, things like that. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and then the actual size of the battery. So if you think about that in terms of the value chain, right, you start with the extraction of some of those minerals that are really needed in the battery so that it has the properties that allow it to charge and discharge. Um, these are what are typically called critical minerals. They're critical for a number of different reasons. Um, and you know the definition of critical actually differs depending on who you ask. The common theme is that they're critical to the green transition, but there are other aspects that the government of Canada, for example, will say like uh, n- critical to national security or critical to our allies. Um, and so then they can expand the definition to cover more than just what would necessarily be in a battery and include things like maybe like tungsten or uranium or something like that. But in speaking in terms of batteries, right, you then you then have the minerals that are really critical for those batteries. That would include things like lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, graphite, right? 
those are like some of the big ones that you'll hear about if you if you if you talk about critical minerals for batteries. Those are extracted then from the earth, and they're done a number of different ways. Um, you know, we can get into exactly how that's done for some of these different minerals, but think about like traditional mining techniques almost. They are then processed, refined into the powders or liquids that are needed to then go into the battery technologies. And then they're manufactured and they're manufactured into what we call the kind of battery materials or battery active materials. This would be like cathodes, anodes, electrolyte solutions in the battery um, to actually allow it to charge and discharge and do what it does. They're then assembled into battery cells. That's what you think of when you think of your like cylindrical battery. And then that goes into a battery pack that goes into a vehicle, right? So you've got these, uh, this, this lengthy kind of supply chain, starting with these critical minerals that are really needed to go into the components and then ending with the battery that goes into a vehicle. If you think about that breakdown of value, right? So the value of a battery, that upstream extraction portion, that's the 10%, right? That's like of the value by profit or actually revenue of associated with a battery is going to sit 10% in just extraction. 90% is all of those downstream activities. So if you are, if you are a, a country uh, or a company that just pulls, you know, the, you know, lithium carbonate out of the ground and then ships it off to be refined somewhere else, and then it gets sold on to be, you know, manufactured into things, you are, you are losing out on 90% of the value of that product. And by capturing a greater share of that value chain, we argue that Canada can really, you know, 10x really it's, it's opportunity when you just, when you, instead of looking just at the minerals in the ground. I think that's a great explanation um, and clarified a lot for me. Where does Canada fit into that now? Like what parts of that supply chain are we playing in right now, if any? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think Canada, you know, traditionally we think of Canada as being very good at resource extraction. And that is where we play currently. So uh, nickel reserves you'll be familiar with or some of your audience may be familiar with like nickel as it relates to Ontario and elsewhere in Canada. Um, and then some of the other critical minerals. Um, we have resources. We have um, uh, deposits that are you know, known. And, uh, and we, we extract and participate and export some of those minerals. Uh, Canada also plays in the further downstream um, you know, vehicle assembly part of the kind of value chain currently. Um, but then there is a bit of a missing middle with respect to processing, refining, the cathode, uh, anode materials, the battery cell manufacturing. Um, there have been some announcements. There have been some companies that are looking at and interested in investing in Canada and placing uh, facilities here, and that's great. Um, but currently, uh, we, uh, you know, we, we really focus on that extraction end of the value chain, and that's where I think we we have you know, in our study have sort of argued that we can really broaden that and, and, and build a more integrated value chain for Canada. And where is the refining and processing being done today? So for electric vehicles and batteries currently, um, the vast majority of processing and refining, it's a bit decentralized, but the vast majority for certain critical minerals like lithium is done in uh, China. So 66% of the world's lithium hydroxide flows through China today. Um, and this is another you know, opportunity as you think about a localized battery value chain, right? Not only would this better qualify um, you know, uh, these vehicles under you know, legislation like the IRA um, or to meet certain environmental standards, but it also decreases the need to ship minerals 
around the world, uh, you know, decreases their footprint uh, before they can get into a battery. When you look at, um, I guess, when you look at the reserves um, in Canada right now, so going back to the to the top of the supply chain, uh, what does Canada have, uh, and how do we stack up in comparison to the rest of the world? Yeah, so Canada has. When you think of what Canada has in terms of the critical minerals we have available, you know, as it relates to the battery transition, Canada really has everything uh, uh, under our feet or, 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 you know, in terms of our natural resource uh, wealth. Um, that is to say, we've got these minerals. We don't necessarily have proven reserves available um, for all of them. Um, uh, and so there is a, you know, a necessary very early first part of the value chain, which is exploration and ensuring that we have the you know, adequate reserves to meet some of the upcoming supply crunch. Um, but, uh, you know, there are, you know, reserves of lithium, magnesium, manganese, nickel, all of those minerals that I, I mentioned earlier that are really critical for batteries. Uh, and then some of the additional ones that the government has classed as critical, um, you know, we do have available today. Do we have those in significant quantities? I mean, if we, I know that this is only 10% of this, the value chain, but if we wanted to become, you know, the world's leading extractor of lithium or cobalt or something mm -hmm. along those lines, is that a realistic goal or where do we sit in terms of the global mix there? Yeah. So currently in terms of the global mix, we are not a top uh, producer or extractor uh, in terms of these. So we have reserves, um, but we are not, you know, the, we don't have the largest reserves. However, in some instances we do have high quality reserves. So that would be like for nickel where quality matters in terms of it's going into a battery. Um, but for something like lithium, you know, there are actually currently no extraction projects um, underway. Um, and uh, we, you know, there have been some studies recently that, that, that you know, assert that Canada's uh, wealth in critical minerals is overstated. I think that they, you know, looked at proven reserves only and not, um, you know, the opportunity and the unproven reserves and the availability of these minerals. Um, so uh, there's definitely, you know, I think more to come, but it will require an integrated, you know, approach both from the government and from the private sector to come together into a cohesive strategy and really say, okay, we want to incentivize extraction. We want to incentivize exploration. We want to make sure that we have sites that are going to come online. Um, and we want to do that in a sustainable way. So we really shore up that first part of the value chain, that extraction, so that we can continue to build out um, uh, the, the full value chain. Um, in terms of where we stack up, you know, I think if you think about some of the most critical minerals like lithium, for example, the vast majority today comes from Chile, Argentina, Australia. Um, and then, like I said, uh, you know, flows through uh, China for refining um, before it eventually ends up being manufactured into cells and batteries elsewhere in the world and in, in, uh, elsewhere in Asia or Europe or the U.S. What are the definitions for uh reserves versus proven reserves versus the opportunities? How can someone, you know, reading through these terms and all the coverage that's coming out kind of differentiate between what people are talking about? Yeah. So the most important piece here would be proven reserves, right? And so that is, we know it's in the ground. We know roughly in what quantity and what quality. Um, and so then we can go and build a mining project around getting it. 
Um, I think that there's unproven reserves, which are then around like not actually knowing some of the specifics, but having, you know, a, a good idea what's there. Uh, and that's what we need to, what we need to, you know, uh, build out more is Canada's proven reserves in these minerals. I think we've, we know <laughs> given our vast, you know, land mass and natural resource wealth that these will be available. Um, it's just a matter of incentivizing the exploration to go and find them and then build out the infrastructure mm-hmm. required to, to actually get them. Um, and then lastly, I will say it's really important just to do this in a sustainable way. Um, and so we talk a lot about, you know, there's Canada has vast natural resource wealth, mineral resource wealth. That's great. We can capture more of a value chain. That's great. But, you know, there's a real onus on us to do this in a way that is not just, um, you know, sustainable environmentally. Partly that's important because um, more and more auto makers are looking at the footprint of their batteries and their minerals and want to under, want to make sure that these are, you know, low footprint manufactured and, and extracted and processed sustainably, but also in consultation with communities, um, you know, across the country, um, because this is going to involve extraction. Um, you know, you need to make sure that we're having a, a very fair share that's delivered back to the communities that is that this is actually happening in. Um, and so it's a, it's a balance of accelerating the extraction and, 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 allowing for greater expansion of our uh, our proven reserves while also respecting the you know communities and uh, and uh, areas these are these minerals are, are going to be or have been found in so staying on the topic of critical mm-hmm. minerals just for uh, another question wondering where we and if we'll see a shortage of certain minerals in the near term and I guess more broadly if the supply chain for uh, EV batteries were to start to break down, where would we start to see it first in today's landscape? Yeah, so absolutely. It's a great question. Um, We are. And so earlier I referenced that demand is uh, outpacing, you know, uh, supply uh, or will outpace supply of, of batteries. That's driven largely by availability of these minerals. Um, BCG in another report that we that we authored um, found that by 2030 demand for lithium specifically is going to outpace supply by four percent and we think that that gap will reach 24 percent by 2030 that's really like a chronic shortage of lithium um, and that is based on the mining projects underway that is based on possible mining projects so mining projects that haven't even been you know necessarily proved or announced uh, or brought online yet and recycling and novel technologies if you include all of that we still anticipate that there will be a shortage in the 2030s Um, the same goes for some other minerals like nickel where you see a potential shortage or a gap in uh in what we have uh proven available and possible to extract versus how we meet demand for batteries right um in terms of where things would break down i think you know that's kind of it uh, it's at that early end in the supply chain where we see the earliest breakdowns uh so it would be in um the availability of these minerals to actual actually power that transition i, I could see you know um it, it, a couple of things happening and, and we call these out in our report you know one is uh, the the emergence of novel technologies to actually address this. So uh, these could be new battery technologies entirely uh, that don't use or don't rely on critical minerals, but none of those have really been you know, proven at scale to date. Um, or novel extraction technologies uh, that expand our ability to get this stuff out of the ground. So things like 
direct lithium extraction, for example, which pulls lithium out of liquid in a much more, you know, efficient and sustainable way is, again, still being proven. And there are some startups in Canada working on it. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't have like a proven stream of critical minerals coming through those those novel pathways yet. Um, and then the other element in terms of where there's risk here is just, I think, the global supply chain that we see today, right? We talked earlier about how much of this flows through uh, China and around the world. Um, and if you just think about the the opportunity for supply chain disruption, as we saw with COVID, as we've seen with, you know, some, you know, geopolitical events currently, um, you know, there really is a necessity that we have these more localized value chains that allow us to continue to support these industries without major disruption risk. Um, so I think it's partly a supply concern um, and uh, it's partly a, you know, supply chain geopolitical disruption risk concern that we think we can kind of help mitigate both both here at home and in North America with the U.S. and and its you know recent legislation. What are the barriers to uh, extracting more of these minerals in Canada today? Like I think about projects like the Ring of Fire, for example, mm-hmm. in Ontario, mm-hmm. which I feel like I've been hearing about uh, since I you know forever, and mm-hmm. never seems to really get off the ground in the way that it's promised. What's going on there? Like, if there's such a demand for these things and clear shortages that we can see on the horizon, why are yeah. we not investing in ext- more extraction right now? Yeah, I think you can point to a number of acute like reasons for any given site as to why. Um, but in in BCG's study, we really kind of try and bring this up a level to like, what's the overall driving reason why we're not actually seeing this happen so far? And it is, I think, the overall critical minerals approach and strategy. Currently, or up until recently, the government had disparate federal, provincial, private sector, you know, strategies um, that were all trying to do similar things either in different ways or without consultation with each other um canada you know just late last year after our report was issued released their their canadian critical mineral strategy right and this is a great first step they, they, they start, start to bring all of these initiatives into one place and say okay this is like the thrust of um you know where we want to to take you know this critical mineral strategy in canada but it's really bringing that together into one formal strategy so that the um uh, the provinces and the federal government and the private sector can come together and say, okay, this is how we, this is what we need to do. And this is how we can do it. I mean, the critical mineral strategy is a, a really necessary first step to doing that, but it's more of that coordinated strategic planning and thinking that's needed to really get some of those opportunities off the ground. Like, as you mentioned, the, the ring of fire with infrastructure requirements and things like that. Just, this is probably uh, kind of a dumb question, but, why do we need a strategy for this at all? Is it the nature of the sector? Because in a lot of other sectors, if the private sector can see, mm-hmm. you know, there's going to be shortages, lots of demand, well, we'll invest more now. We don't need to have all these different levels of government involved. Is that just the nature of resource extraction that it, it has to involve all these different players? Partly, yes. Partly, it's also the uh, the nature of the minerals themselves. So their scarcity, their importance to the green transition and their importance to 
you know, as the government says, national security in some instances really necessitate that, you know, involvement from different parties, uh, provincial and, and, and federal. And then obviously these things become part of policy, right? Like trying to extract more, create more jobs, place more jobs here. And, and that is a, a, you know, responsibility of the government to try and attract that investment and build out that value chain. So I think it is a, it is a, uh, it is necessary to have all of these players at the table. Uh, and then lastly, I'll kind of come back to something I said earlier, which is that, you know, the, the amount of community consultation um, in order to do this sustainably that will be required um, is, uh, is important. And, and that's something that the government has been working on. And again, is included in the critical mineral strategy, which is great. Um, but uh, it needs to be dr driven again by these multiple parties in the ecosystem. Are there pieces of the critical mineral strategy that stand out to you as being, I guess, particularly encouraging developments or things that people should pay attention to? Yeah, I think there are a couple that kind of align with our sort of thesis around like localized supply chains and, and their importance. Um, so basically, the, the Canadian government in part responded to the IRA and other national security concerns when they thought about some elements of, of uh, ensuring that foreign investment was coming from parties that would qualify under the IR, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. So that is, um, you know, a, a number of stipulations as to how electric vehicles can earn uh, tax credits in the U.S., uh, and therefore, you know, where the minerals and the batteries need to come from. I'm happy to go into detail as to how that all works, but um, it also stipulates that there can't be certain involvement from certain players. And the government has sort of responded and started to started to say, okay, well, we, we then can't, need to ensure ownership is, is, is responsible and that we, are, we have some visibility and transparency uh, in these projects in Canada so they would qualify and so that we can actually build out this, this ecosystem that would qualify under the USIRA. So I think that's one very promising, uh, uh, very promising uh, element here. The other is some of the incentives for extraction that they've laid out. Um, those are, um, uh, or exploration, those are, um, going to be very helpful to continue to push forward that like proven reserves problem that we've talked about earlier. Um, and, uh, and really fuel this, this, battery value chain. Uh, maybe we should talk about the IRA because it's come up a few times now. And I think it'd be good just to talk about what is important in the Inflation Reduction Act to this sector. Uh, totally. Why is it a relevant topic? Yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, among a number of different things, really incentivized uh, a lot of kind of green technology uh, in the U.S. Um, and one of those uh, uh, elements that it addressed was battery electric vehicles. Uh, and in particular, um, how those battery electric vehicles can qualify for a tax credit uh, that they had been previously earning and, and will continue to earn if they meet these new criteria. Um, so that's a $7,500 U.S. tax incentive on the, the, the price of these vehicles. And Folks will be familiar with like, you know, the discounts that you can get when you buy an EV. This is basically what that is. In the U.S. now for that, um, you know, tax incentive uh, to, to, to be applied, half of it uh, is contingent on the actual battery critical minerals being sourced from the U.S. or a free trade partner starting this year, starting in 2023. Uh, and then, then it's uh, the number is 40 percent today are increasing 
uh, up to 80% over several years. The other half of the tax incentive um, it applies if 50% of the battery components are manufactured or assembled in North America starting this year, and that goes up to 100%. And then there's actually a third stipulation, which is kind of a knockout criteria, um, which is that no applicable critical minerals are extracted, processed, or recycled by a foreign entity of concern, uh, and no components are produced by a foreign entity of concern. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is not a foreign entity of concern. We are a free trade nation uh, and we are in North America. So we really qualify right under all of these these stipulations to serve the U.S. market with batteries for their electric vehicles. And that is part of this opportunity. You know, when we think about our article, like Canada has an EV edge if it acts now, the now part of that is like in light of some of these later, you know, recent happenings. Um, uh, this is where that opportunity you know, comes from today. So just to clarify on that, so the IRA does not give American battery manufacturers or critical mineral refiners, it doesn't give them any advantage over Canadian uh, competitors, I guess? There are some uh, incremental incentives for U.S. domestic manufacturing and refining. And one example is a production tax credit, um, which applies to advanced manufacturing in the U.S. Um, so that would be... Uh, a tax credit for battery manufacturing done domestically. It's, it's very significant. It actually you know, would equate to um, potentially up to a quarter or a third of the cost of a battery offset uh, oh, in wow. terms of an incentive. So, so it's really meaningful. Um, and that's part of the challenge, right? While we qualify for all of these uh, elements under the IRA, um, you know, we found uh, that there are still some of these challenges that we have not yet addressed and that make you know, Canada you know, slightly less attractive than potentially our neighbor. And so needing to have a coordinated strategy so that the government can come in and say, okay, well, we need to continue to make ourselves attractive um, uh, and, and compete with some of those, some of those additional uh, elements of the, of the IRA. So, you know, there are some elements that incentivize domestic U.S. production and then and then beyond battery electric vehicles and some of the other technologies that the IRA incentivizes like hydrogen and things like that. There's all sorts of other stipulations. But just as it relates to batteries, um, the main you know, thrust of these um, uh, tax incentive stipulations do include Canada. Uh, and that's where this opportunity really stems from. So if a lot of the opportunity is in the context of the IRA, and we don't yet have a super, you know, developed industry that can service, you know, more of those downstream activities. Like what happens next and, and what is the mm -hmm. timeline? Totally. So, I mean, I've got good news there, which is that there has been an, a number of uh, investments made in the battery value chain, both prior to the IRA and then since its announcement. Um, so there's a more domestic uh, ecosystem companies that are already, you know, have already invested or built out some infrastructure, um, you know, Ford and GM, for example, um, obviously, you know, Ford GM Canada, um, having, uh, you know, facilities here and investing to produce EVs in Canada, uh, but then battery materials companies coming online, novel extraction companies coming online, thinking about how they can do this in Canada, uh, and then some international investment as well. So, um, you know, uh, several uh, chemicals companies thinking about how they can create cathode materials and the chemicals that go into cathode materials, precursor materials, um, uh, large auto companies um, like Stellantis, um, 
investing in EV battery plants um, in Ontario uh, or planning to do so. Um, so these are like investments that we're already seeing, announcements we're seeing, and they're and they're and they're, they're you know um, uh, ongoing. That's great, and that's partly in response to some of this legislation that favors Canada, um, and it's partly uh, because of our proximity and uh, and and terrific um, resources, both in terms of natural resources and in terms of people and and quality, you know, technical skills and things like that. Um, I think we can expect to see more of that, but I think we also want to see uh, even more of a coordinated, as we've said, kind of strategy coming from from both the government and the private sector to say, okay, here's how we're going to work together to build up this integrated value chain. So even if, say, we don't have lithium reserves come online next year to fuel this value chain, because that's way too fast, they never will, we could theoretically import lithium from another free trade partner, process it in Canada, and you know, you do the rest of the value chain while we build out our, our, our mineral reserves. Um, that is something that you know we look forward to seeing a bit more of the coordinated action on on capitalizing on this opportunity. Um, uh, and uh, we're already seeing some of those investments um, uh, already. What kind of uh, jobs are those in the, the middle of the value chain there, the processing, the refining? Are those jobs that Canadians would want to do? You know, I can't, I can't speak to the specific jobs themselves, but I would say that it's not like, you know, um, uh, it, it, it's not the traditional how you would think of like very dirty labor. This is like chemistry type jobs. These are fairly okay. technical when you think about battery materials and precursor materials. This is really chemistry. And then in mining, it's like geology and, and you know, modern mining and things like that. It, it's it's uh, it's not the kind of dirty stuff that you think of. Um, uh, there are definitely some, you know, shop floor frontline jobs that that will need doing. But um, I think if done in Canada and if done responsibly, it's still a, a tremendous opportunity for us. Not to be a, a pessimist, Eric, but I'm looking at all of these, you know, steps of the value uh, of the supply chain that you've wonderfully laid out for us. And I can't help but wonder if the U.S. figures out a way to just keep all of these steps within their borders versus kind of like flying across to Canada, you know, to produce battery cells and then, you know, bringing it back mm -hmm. to, you know, produce a battery pack. Not that I know if that would ever happen, but wouldn't they right. just do that? Right. So I think it, there's obviously advantages to, to incentivizing, you know, domestic production. Um, one of the, the elements that, that, that BCG found in our, in, in our lithium supply crunch report is, is that, um, proximity does matter. And actually, if you think about the proximity of some of the facilities that are being located in Ontario and Quebec to right. where vehicles are manufactured in the U.S., it's actually closer. Uh, it's, 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 it's much more cost effective um, than, than, for example, doing it in California uh, or, or somewhere like that. Now, that's not mm -hmm. to say that's true for all manu manufacturers and all facilities, but there are definite advantages there. Um, so that's one piece, right? Proximity uh, does matter. Um, the other piece is, uh, is just our, our natural resource wealth here in Canada and making sure that, you know, uh, the, the, U the, the U S and our partners also have access to, to, to that through some of these, these agreements where we can actually do capture a tremendous amount of the value here, um, but still power the transition and think about how important these are for our, you know, our, our, our allies and free trade partners. So. You mentioned earlier that China right now and mm -hmm. some other Asian countries 
accounts for a lot of the production and mm-hmm. uh, that part of the, the supply chain. Is all of this opportunity for Canada, is it dependent on deglobalization occurring? Like, is it dependent on detaching from those supply chains that are based in China and onshoring them or Frenchshoring them or whatever term you want to use here? Um, I would say that that it's it's a very, you know, it's a very like nuanced problem when you think about deglobalization. The short answer is I don't think so. I think this is about this is about localization uh, to a certain extent. But as mentioned, right, the the lithium supply chain, for example, can still flow from South America to North America, given the tremendous reserves that are in South America. And that would be more sustainable than it is done currently and would allow for Canada to build out more of a localized uh, uh, ecosystem. Um, same with the same with the U.S. So I think that there are um, uh, there are some elements of that localization that you know incentivize local production that mean that we will have um, some some be they supply chain security um, uh, concerns addressed. That's great, um, but it's not necessarily just about that. It's about um, securing more value for. Uh, the countries that have this natural, you know, resource wealth. Um, and then I would say, you know, the partnership with the U.S. by virtue of our proximity and our trade status is great. But, you know, similar um, is happening in Europe uh, with respect to some of their local, you know, critical minerals production and their reliance on, you know, imports today um, and how they can um, think about, you know, sourcing more locally Um Finally, I'll just say that this is also in a sustainability argument, right? So the less you ship uh, these materials around the world, the less of a footprint they have before they end up in a vehicle. And some people may be familiar, but the the, the footprint of an electric vehicle before it hits the road, you know, on average is, is higher than that of an internal combustion engine vehicle today. So they are more emissions intensive to produce. And that's because of, you know, the, the mineral extraction, the amount of transportation they need, the battery manufacturing and things like that. There are a number of incentives or the number of programs trying to bring that down. In the EU, they have their battery passport and then consumers around the world who don't want to step into a vehicle that has a, you know, a high carbon footprint before they've even started driving it. So there's also an incentive here around how we can do this sustainably and how we can build these vehicles in a way um, that, uh, uh, that, that won't increase their carbon footprint before they even hit the road. And part of that solution does need to be, you know, more localized sourcing and, and production. So let's talk about people wanting to drive EVs. Um, mm-hmm. I think, uh, the number that I have here from BCG is the projection that up to, or sorry, close to 60% of all light vehicles sold globally by 2035 will be, uh, battery electric. Um, and mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder what um, your response is as far as that demand holding up in light of, I mean, in Canada, especially how, you know, expensive EVs are as we enter a cost of living crisis. Um, you yeah. know, the fact that the batteries themselves are not, you know, optimal for the country's kind of sub-zero type temperatures um, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and things like that. 
Right. So I think that there are, uh, you're absolutely right. The, the article that BCG published, I think it was called electric cars are finding their next gear. Um, and it goes into all of our projections on this. Um, it's really interesting, uh, reading, um, the, uh, the article does lay out that projection that you know, demand for these vehicles is going to drive adoption up to 59% by 2035 in light vehicles. Um, and then, you know, in medium duty and heavy duty vehicles, we will also see uptick, right? So then the demand is actually even more than just light vehicles. There's going to be battery applications elsewhere as well that have that, 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 that drive demand for batteries. Um, that's like a really, really, really high target to hit as you, as you call out, especially in light of like wait lists today, um, and supply chain disruption concerns. I think we, and, and that article actually called out a couple of the key restrictions that we foresee. One of them is something we've already talked about, which is just critical minerals availability. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the minerals to make these batteries, there's a real risk that that could be put on pause. And that's why it's so critical to continue thinking about where are these coming from? Do we have enough of them? And do we have the supply chains to make this happen? Um, the other one was on infrastructure. And I think it's kind of like charging infrastructure adoption, making sure that we have the grid that can support something that does that and uh, uh, that, that, that charges these vehicles and that there is enough access, access to charging. Um, so those were some of the restrictions that they called out. And then, yes, like there are temperature concerns uh, when you, whenever you talk about batteries and things like that in Canada that we absolutely, um, you know, need to, to think about and need to be taken into account. But in for the vast majority of Canadians, where they are, where they live and, and how they operate, um, that, uh, that has not been a, 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 um, mitigating factor so far. I've, the number of electric vehicles I see in Toronto seems to explode every single day. Um, so uh, I, I would say it's more so on the availability of the inputs to make the vehicles and the infrastructure to support them. That's where the risks are. Um, and uh, and that was the, the the findings of that BCG report that you that you mentioned. Um, uh, and then you know the opportunity for Canada to play in that space is the report that 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 we co-authored as well on on just the opportunity for Canada. But yeah, absolutely, there are there are definitely some concerns in terms of stifling that. But if we can get it right, um, we will see an absolutely absolute explosion in EVs, and we'll see it continue. So I, we're almost at the end of the time we've got you here for, but I just want to wrap up with one question: If people are uh, this is an issue that people care about, and there's so many moving pieces. It's kind of difficult to wrap your head around it. And mm -hmm. obviously, there's different levels of government, many of whom have an interest in making it appear that progress is happening on this front, that think good things are happening for Canada in this space. I guess if you're interested in this topic, uh, what should you look at to assess whether we're making progress on becoming a big player in battery manufacturing and EV manufacturing? What are the key things to look out for? It's a great question. I think there are, you know, two major pieces that come to mind. Um, one is the announcements that are being made and whether progress is being made against those announcements. And by those announcements, I mean, um, facilities, um, the, the partners that are looking to locate in Canada, um, build facilities, um, build processing and manufacturing capabilities here, and whether we're seeing actual progress there. That would be the first thing to look out for. Um, and the other piece is whether it's being done sustainably, because I do think that there is a, a, a sort of knockout criteria here, which is 
if this is not done both in consultation with the communities and in a way that has a low carbon intensity, um, then it's not going to be an attractive proposition for um, uh, for our partners and for um, the companies that need to put these batteries in their vehicles. So I think those are two elements that I would make sure to look out for. The In particular, the progress on these announcements and then the continued announcements uh, and then the kind of how of how it's being done and some of those uh, some of those factors. Um, I, I think there's there's tremendous opportunity here and we can kind of look forward to keeping track of it. Um, as mentioned, right, there's there's a 10, 10x value unlock if we can go past just extraction and get into some of these downstream elements. And so um, the announcements that have been made, the strategy that's been laid out so far, those are terrific first steps. Um, and uh, I am also looking forward to kind of keeping track of this and seeing how we do uh, as uh, as the country keeps pushing forward. Well, Eric, that was fantastic. Awesome. Really interesting stuff. Uh, I learned a ton about batteries, <laughs> the supply chain. It's great. Awesome. So it was my pleasure. Your time. Of course. Of course. My pleasure. Well, love that chat with Eric. I feel like this is one of those developing industries that you read about all the time. And like you go into a conversation like this thinking that you have some sort of understanding of like how the supply chain works and, you know, what the opportunities are and developments are. And then you kind of have someone like him on and you realize, oh my gosh, my understanding was so underdeveloped. And so very, very glad we had him on. What do you think? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like I went into this thinking that critical minerals were the most important thing because yeah, that's where it seems like the shortages are happening and that's where a lot of coverage is. But you know, immediately off the bat, it was like, oh, it's actually only 10% of uh, the value here. So really the other 90% is what we should be focused on. We probably don't spend enough time talking or thinking about that piece of it. Yeah, definitely an optimistic case for the future of the industry and Canada's role within it. Just really interested to see how those pieces play out as far as our actual involvement in those downstream activities and and what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, it seemed to come across at least from Eric's, what I took from Eric's uh, point of view was that our advantage with the more valuable downstream stuff is in the extraction that we can do the extraction here. And then the geographic proximity gives us an advantage over American producers or manufacturers. So that seems like an important thing to pull out from that. Like if we want to capture some of that 90%, then, you know, based on that conversation, I walked away thinking really our only advantage over the U.S. is that we are closer to a lot of the resources that are needed as inputs into the process. So even though that's only 10% of it, we still need to actually do that 10% in order to get the rest of it. Yeah. And something else that really paints the picture of how early on we are in this industry is that piece about how emission intensive it is to get one of these cars on the road. Um, mm, yeah. And that was news that, to me. Definitely news kind of to embarrassing me to admit that, but yeah, that I didn't realize that. No, I think it reminds me of, of what does it remind me of? It reminds me of recycling. How, Mm, yeah, recycling. <laughs> that, that that most things are kind of ending up in the 
in the landfill, or at least where I don't have the updated facts too, but it's one of those things that it's like, you just want to get consumers, you know, going through the motions, you know, getting used to the habits and stuff like that too. And then the infrastructure and then the industry is going to kind of catch up to then, you know, deliver on the environmental benefit that totally it's started to offer. And I, I remember learning of those, you know, that recycling maybe wasn't all it was cracked up to be for the first time. And I was like, oh my God, I've been lied to my entire life. You know, that reduce, reuse, recycle, that was hammered into you. And it was like, it's just going into a landfill. Well, maybe not everywhere. I shouldn't say that. We're trying we to be know. accurate. We don't, we don't have maybe the facts. Some places maybe have a great recycling program. I think, I don't know if, um, well, I don't Scandinavia. know. Scandinavia. Yeah. I think Sweden has a great recycling program, <laughs> which is not really surprising. Uh, okay, well, is that a, a good place to leave it for today? I think so. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Free Lunch. You can find us here every week on Tuesdays with new episodes, unpacking topics and themes that matter most to Canadians. I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can find me at Sarah Bartnika on Twitter. And I'm Taylor Scullin, at Taylor Scullin on Twitter. And make sure to follow Free Lunch by The Peak on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.